Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luca and you are listening to the Corporate Unplugged podcast for people shaping the future of business. On the show today, Neha Sangwan, MD and CEO and founder of Intuitive Intelligence. And today we'll talk about burnout and how organizations and individuals can heal burnout. So Neha, big welcome to my podcast. Oh, so excited to be here, Vesna. And really excited to be in Europe. Yeah, you're literally right now around the corner. I'm in Milan and you are in the Como area. So I actually get to see you tonight, which I'm thrilled about. And I'm very grateful also that our paths actually have crossed thanks to uh, Raj Sisodia. So Neha, I'd like to start with this question that I find very important to understand the reason behind the important work you're doing. And that is what your passion is, you know, that thing that is so important to you that you're also willing to sacrifice a lot for it if needed. Well, I have come to understand that after many years of searching that I believe not just my passion, but anyone listening's passion often arises from the tragedies or the, you know, tough times in our lives where we've struggled, where we've had to figure something out that maybe those around us couldn't help us with. And maybe it was even from when we were younger. And for me, it was really around being able to express myself, being able to communicate, being able to navigate my emotions and feel like I belong. So when I was very young, at three months old to two years old, in the Indian culture, you kind of pass kids around, right? And you share them in an extended family. And so my grandmother and grandfather took me with them from three months to two years old to Africa. And so when I was with them, I had, and um, I mean, the pictures all look amazing. Of course, I don't remember it, but I was very loved by my grandparents. But upon my return back to my family at two years old, I really struggled. It was very painful for me. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't have the words to express it. And then I began getting bullied. And so what happened for me is literally a shutdown of communication and emotion. And that went on until my 30s. And so my pain of disconnection and difficulty communicating and navigating emotions, when in my 30s, I burned out and I learned, oh, wow, this is part of where you have a big net drain of energy. When I learned how to do communication, navigating emotions, self-awareness, all of these pieces, boy, I lit up and I could see all the places in the world where this could help heal people. It could help heal my sick patients in a hospital bed because if stress causes or exacerbates more than 80% of illness, we need to be asking people what's at the root of their stress. Well, when I started asking my patients that, it was very clear to me. It was their inability to communicate with themselves or each other that often, maybe 80, 90% of the time, that was the answer they gave me. And so I started to realize, wow, maybe this can even heal people physically from insomnia, from headaches, from ailments that they're struggling with. Sometimes a physical ailment isn't physical. Sometimes when you and I get in a conflict, I can't sleep at night. When I can't sleep at night, my immune system doesn't repair. And when my immune system doesn't repair, a few days of that, and suddenly I'm falling sick. So I started to understand not only for myself, but as a physician, 
how this could apply to patients, how it could apply to organizations. And so it just spread from there. So my passion is teaching people about their ability to communicate with themselves, with each other, navigate their emotions, manage their energy, learn how to really keep themselves well so that collectively we can all rise together. And it's actually so natural to understand this thing that the physical and the mental kind of health all goes together. And yet, when I step into a hospital like I was yesterday by chance, there's nothing of that. It's just repairing the mechanical stuff, so to say. There is no other dimensions involved at all. And it's not even included like in the system or in the set of questions that a, normally a physician would ask you, right? So why is it so difficult? Because whatever is not scientifically kind of proven or researched, but actually this dimension is, right? So it is researched and there is a lot, but over the years, let's go way back. When we go way back, we think of there was like a medicine man, a medicine woman of a community. And when something was wrong, no matter what it was, physical, mental, emotional, we'd go there and seek guidance, seek help. Sometimes it was the church and the priest, right? All sorts of ways we used to do this. And then as time progressed, inventions such as antibiotics came in. And suddenly, what does our world want? They want a quick fix. They want the quick fix to whatever's happening. And so we have evolved as a world that thinks faster is better, do more with less, profit over people, all of these ideas. And it has influenced where the money and the investment has gone. There's something interesting I find about human nature, which is when we don't know the answer to something, we stamp it out. I want you to think about corporate organizations. Emotions. What did we do with emotions when we didn't understand, when we thought they were going to slow us down, get messy? We didn't understand how to navigate them. What do we say? Keep work at work and home at home. Let's just separate it. So we have this way as humans that we eliminate anything that will slow us down, confuse us, not we can't solve it or we don't know how. And I believe that there's a lot to learn in our physical body and physiology and all of that. And somewhere down the road, even though medicine is in the business of life and death, we've decided just focus on the physical ailment, the pathophysiology, the breakdown, and let's take care of that. That's our job. Leave everything else to the mental health professionals, the psychiatrists. So it's a way we simplified human ailments, interactions, right? And the problem is now we miss when something physical isn't physical. It doesn't have a physical origin. I'll give you a quick example. My own mother, and this is in my first book, Talker X, but my own mother had an arranged marriage to my dad in 1965, came here, didn't know him, came to a new country, kind of managing things. Well, my mom wasn't really a big communicator. My father would blow up and explode. A few years in, she started experiencing headaches and then migraines, and then they were unrelenting. And so she went to many, many doctors, got head scans, did everything that you would do, took pills, right? But these migraines wouldn't go away until one day in her therapy session, she had, was seeing someone. This person says to her, I actually am going to say something that is going to sound a little crazy. I think your migraines are you absorbing your husband's anger. You don't express it would he be willing to come to a session to learn about this? She said, yeah, he's open. He, he'd be willing to do it. She brings my dad to the session. 
And my dad's like, oh my gosh, I never knew that when I get angry, you absorb that energy and that's what's causing this. And from that day forward, my mom never had another migraine. And so she also had to learn to speak up. It wasn't just my dad learning how to handle his temper. It was my mom learning to express herself. And so this happened long before I learned any of this. And once I wrote the book and I was, you know, in the middle of it all, my mom said, oh, you're right, Neha. Let me tell you about what happened 30 years ago. And so it was such a, a beautiful connection, but it's absolutely all connected. And there's a lot of research. Let me give you one more. Pennebaker's work. So Pennebaker's work is pretty classic. It's basically a study where they studied people with autoimmune disease and various illnesses journaling 20 minutes a day for four days, and they were able to measure in their blood a boost in their immune function, their ability to express themselves. And so there's all sorts of ways that this has been proven, but it's not the quick fix that people are like, oh, give me, give me that pill and let's just keep going. It actually requires your energy and time to do it. So the idea is Band-Aids versus root cause healing. And you get to decide which path you want to take. And sometimes they can both go together. Sometimes I need the pill to get me through a certain period of time while I simultaneously start healing what's underneath it. And that's really what I advocate for. But there is a built-in respect towards doctors. So when you go to a hospital, it's just something that we've inherited, I think, this respect towards doctors. So if they don't bring in this other aspect and, you know, more kind of integrated look at things, it requires quite a bit from the individual to do it on their own, right? So is there any hope that we will see more and more doctors actually at least just talk about it or just present that dimension to the people? What do you think? Yes. You know, there's been a group of, I don't know, 20 of us that I have been learning from and moving with for 20 years. People like Mark Hyman, people like Jim Gordon and, you know, Rachel Naomi Remen and there's a whole group of people, Dean Ornish, people who believe this and have believed it for many years and have been building the body of research to get this out into the world. And that takes time. And yes, when the education system continues to be the way that it is, it can churn out many more doctors than we have the ability to influence, of course. So my belief is that this has to start in education if we're going to ever do this on a mass scale. The second thing is the beauty of technology and the internet and social media. Now we go directly to patients all over the world. They don't even need to be our patient. So I have a lot of hope. It's the reason I spent, you know, years writing books because it's the one way that I can scale what I'm saying and doing in a way that for 20 something dollars, someone can have all the information that took me decades and decades to realize. The other thing is, you know, we joke that medicine changes the death of one physician at a time or the breakdown of one physician at a time. Because if you look at Mark Hyman, my story, all of us at one point had a breakdown in the system where we couldn't get the help we needed. And we realized the limits of what we had spent decades studying for. And in that awakening and awareness, our mind expanded. And listen, now I teach med students, I write books, I do podcasts, I do everything I can to change that viewpoint. What I will tell you is most people say, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense, except my colleagues in practice. They're like, 
come on, where's the white paper for that? Are you kidding? And they'll resist it. Why? Because they've spent all this energy, time, and effort learning a certain way. And here I am coming in with something else. And so their defense is, where's the research on that? It's there, but it requires someone being interested in delving into it. So you've literally dedicated the last, I would say, two decades or so to address this global epidemic uh, of burnout and also to find a comprehensive way to scale this healing. And I know that on the 19th of September, very soon now, your new book is coming out and um, the book is called Powered by Me, From Burned Out to Fully Charged at Work and in Life. So tell us a little bit more about how this book came about and also really the primary causes of burnout, because I think that many of us think about it like, okay, somebody who just worked too much, you know? kind of overdid it, but what is it actually? So this is such an important question. You know, Vesna, related to the last question you asked me, here's the bottom line. Physicians get paid to have the answer of why you're ill, what the pain in your head means, what the pain in your back means. I think one of the biggest barriers for practicing physicians to kind of open up their thinking is that they would have to say, I don't know. That's not something we're taught. And that's not something we're good at. So I'd start there. Boy, burnout, I would say it starts quite young in the sense that I told you my story already. And I'd tell you that at a very young age, I began to adjust who I was to please those around me. Many people do this in our families, with our friends, as we become teenagers, and ultimately in our work environments and with our partnership. I became a very big people pleaser and I wanted to get an A. I wanted to achieve. And as I moved into my work environment and I had been working relentlessly, I just pushed through my body. I didn't partner with it. So in order to do engineering and then work, I worked for Motorola, then do medicine, then go into residency. I was 31 years old before I stopped schooling and I was hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. So I felt this pressure that I just had to push through everything. I had been doing it for a very long time, except three years in, I hit the wall of burnout. One day, I literally walked in. Last day of my rotation, I walked in and I asked this nurse, Nina, can you please replete 40 milliequivalents of IV potassium for the guy in 636, the patient in 636? And she looked at me and she's like, Dr. Sanglon, are you okay? And that was my first indication that I might not be. And in that moment, that's how tuned out I was. I had just asked her the same question four times. She had answered it to me. And I just kept going. It's almost like um, when something gets stuck on repeat, but literally my brain short circuited. And that is an extreme case of going all the way to not functioning. But what that's a case of is me gradually pushing myself and pushing myself and pushing myself more and more and more. So much so that I didn't even realize that I was that far down the path. So what I am really grateful for is that I didn't make a wrong medication error or I didn't hurt anybody, but it was a huge wake up call. So what I did in that moment was I picked up the phone and I called a psychiatrist colleague because one of my friends had struggled with this six months earlier. And that was the first time I thought, oh, my goodness, what is this thing that's going on? And I knew who to call because this guy had helped her. He was a psychiatrist. So I called him and I said, can I come and talk to you? He said, absolutely. Come in and let's talk. One hour later, he said to me, 
every shift in the hospital that isn't filled doesn't need to be covered by you just because you took an oath to serve. You have a severe case of people-pleasing. I think you're in a dysfunctional environment where there's bullying and there's things going on that are not okay, that are not being addressed. And I think you've hit a wall. You are going to need to change your relationship to self-care. You have pushed through your body, not partnered with it, and it's time for that to change, not just for you, but because it will help the hospital, it'll help the patients, it'll help your career, and it'll help humanity if you show up well cared for. That was radical to me. What do you mean? I had always sacrificed my sleep. We thought it was a badge of honor. We used to say things like, eat when you can, eat when you can, sleep when you can. We thought that was amazing to be that in service. What I have really learned is self-care is not selfish. It's self-full. It's how I can, over time, be able to serve in the world in a way that comes from a repleted, full, energized place, vitality, right? Full of vitality and energy versus a depleted, exhausted place that almost feels like I'm so self-sacrificing that I can do this for myself, for you. It's almost this image of a doctor who's always scurrying around, so exhausted, never enough time, too many patients to see. So what I'd say is burnout started when I was 33. I hit the wall of burnout. I had an idea of who to call because I had seen someone else have this. But when I went in, what I was given was time off. I was given Prozac, but you usually get some cocktail of anti-anxiety, anti-depression medication, and something to sleep. What they're doing by giving you this is almost knocking you out so that you now need to get sleep. Most people are tired and wired. They're helping you get your body and your physiology back in sync. Now, this will grab you when you're falling off the cliff and stop your world and pull you back up. But it doesn't get to the root of, now what? How did I get here and how do I get out of it? So my attempt in this book is, yes, if somebody's burning out or feels like they're burning out, there's an emergency toolkit where they can learn how to do guided imagery, do soft belly breathing, get some tools to reset themselves and then help them figure out, where am I having a net drain of energy? Because you and I, if we both got to burn out, we would get there in, in unique ways, as unique as our fingerprint. So the goal of this book was, how do I explain burnout, simplify it, uh, not simplify it because it's not simple, demystify it. Let's really get it so people understand it. Then let's personalize it so that the person reading knows where to focus first. And then let's give them some practical tools to heal. That was the real goal of the book. So the other piece of what you asked me is, what is this? What is burnout? First of all, burnout was not even acknowledged by the World Health Organization until 2019. In 2019, they have given it a definition that it is ongoing chronic stress as an occupational hazard. So somehow they're keeping it focused on work. Here's what I'll tell you after 25 years of seeing patients. This is not limited to work. Someone can be going through a divorce, have a special needs child, have aging parents. It goes on over time, but to me, it is not only related to an occupational hazard. It can actually be anywhere in your life where you're having this net drain of energy. 
So that's the first thing I'd say about it. And I think over time, the scientific world will come along. But right now, they want to make sure that people aren't blamed for burnout, that somehow it's their fault. And so Christina Maslach, Michael Leiter, these are the pioneers of 40 years who have done the research and laid the foundation. One of the current ones is Tate Shanafelt, who's working on this at Stanford. They're looking now at what I call me, we world. So there is my part in this. There is the environment in which I am working or living. And then there is world events. So for me, it would be people pleasing is my pattern. Not everybody is a people pleaser, so they wouldn't follow that. But each person needs to figure out how they've adjusted in the world to whatever they needed to manage. Then the we part is the environment, dysfunctional cultures, environments. Sometimes people are in difficult, very trying relationships, et cetera, communities. And then world would be things like a global pandemic, a meltdown of the economic you know, systems, war. So when I think of burnout, I think of it on those three levels, me, we, world. The definition is exhaustion, and that would be physical, certainly, and mental, emotional. And then something happens where in your exhaustion, cynicism creeps in. So it's these thoughts that are pretty subtle but profound, like, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this anyway. It doesn't really make a difference. You know, all the energy I put forth, it doesn't really matter. And there comes this, this cynicism that creeps in that edges you further and further down the road to burnout because now you're starting to believe that there's no way out. And then finally, where you heard I was, which is ineffectiveness, where I have hit the wall of no longer being functional. And so that's the triad of burnout. And then the next thing people usually want to know is, I was fine this morning or on Monday I felt fine, but on Friday I was burned out. That's not really how burnout happens. Burnout's a little bit of a, it happens over time. And it's a wearing down of your own physiology and capacity and resilience and resourcefulness. And so there's three phases. The first phase is an alarm phase, which is, it's almost like you're getting on a treadmill going a little too fast. Your heart skips a beat, your adrenaline starts going, your blood pressure goes up. It's that experience. Sometimes it's when you're taking on a new role maybe at a company. But whatever it is, that should happen and then it should subside, right? But many people just start adapting to that faster pace of life and they forget. Now, this is one thing in Europe that is done very well. You all enjoy your life as much as your work. And that to me is a secret to, you know, you can take on something new, but then there's a part where family, community, dinners, relaxation comes in and that's how we're supposed to work. Our body physiologically and muscularly is geared for exertion and then rest. So we've lost that. So the alarm phase is the first phase of burnout. And then if you just keep going and keep adapting to that faster and faster pace, you move into the second phase of burnout, which is the adaptation phase. You're barely hanging on. You don't really get rest. Sometimes you don't even feel rested after the weekend or even after a vacation. You still feel that exhaustion. Sometimes after an entire night of sleep, you wake up and still feel that. You're probably in the adaptation phase. And then one more thing happens. COVID, a disappointment at work. You don't get the promotion, whatever it is. 
and you go sliding down the slippery slope of exhaustion. That's the third phase. And that's where you'll hit the wall of ineffectiveness. For me that day, I didn't even know this, but I was teetering in adaptation phase for a very long time, probably a decade. And one day I got this extra liver transplant patient. I, it, that's very complicated. And it was just one thing too many. And I started spiraling. Does that make sense? Yeah. And as I'm listening, I'm also just reflecting on, on the other day when I talked to a friend of mine who was supposed to come visit up in, in Stockholm for the vacation. And he says, I'm not coming because I just need to be alone and do nothing. I want to be up in the nature, in the mountains. I want to do nothing. I need to do nothing and I need to be just by myself. I don't want to be with anyone. And I know he's overworked and all of that. That is a sign, right? When somebody is in the later stages, it often comes in that chronic adaptation phase where you're just trying to hold on. This person now is saying to you, I need to distance myself from interaction because that's too much energy. And so very smart of this person to do this because where he's going is to nature. He's going back to nature. Why do we love nature so much? Because we are nature. And when we forget and we get caught up in this busyness of life, we go back to the mountains. We don't connect with anyone. We just be in nature. Suddenly we go back into our rhythm. We move into the pace that feels right. Things slow down. We can sleep again. When we can sleep again, our immune system can recharge. Our muscles can repair. Suddenly our memory consolidates. Our emotional processing happens when we sleep. So all of these things, when someone says that, it is such an important message that they have received. You know, some people take it like, oh, I can't believe you're canceling or you aren't going to be with me. I say, congratulations. Congratulations to this person for recognizing that what they need right now is to create a net gain of energy, not a net drain. When you're full and repleted, then community can be a net gain of energy. But when it feels like you've got to put an output of energy to be with people and you don't even have it for yourself, that's a really, really smart move that he made. And my first reflex was to say, oh, I'm so sad to hear that, you know, and then I kind of stopped myself and I said, wait a moment, I'm going to give a confirmation that is, as you say, positive so that he doesn't feel guilty or anything like that, just feels like he's doing actually the right thing by focusing on his well-being and being in nature. But it's so easy to kind of do the other thing, right? <laughs> right. And we're in a society, right, that's a little confused where we revere people who give and give and give and give, right? Or it's a couple things. Either make a lot of money and keep it themselves <laughs> or give and give and give even at the expense of their own well-being. And I think that we are going to, in this all or none world, going to want to figure out pieces like conscious capitalism, which is, hey, can you do good and also make good money while you're doing well for society? Can we take care of ourselves while we are in community? Meaning drawing healthy boundaries, meaning he's not saying no to you, Besta, he's saying yes to himself. And so how do we reframe this paradox of us being able to have everything at once, which is 
our companies thriving, making a profit while we treat our people well and take care of them, while we can keep people over the long haul and do good for society? How in our own health can we ask ourselves, wow, you know, if I'm feeling a little exhausted, what do I need to do to take care of myself, draw some healthy boundaries and communicate clearly and lovingly to people who might be disappointed because I decided not to spend the weekend with them, right? So we have to be able to hold these paradoxes in our world. And I think this is the expansion of consciousness that is now in front of us. It's what COVID taught us. Well, we would have never let people work entirely remotely and believe that they wouldn't be off doing fun, playing board games on our paid time until we did it and realized that they were wildly productive, that they enjoyed their work. And those who really liked it stayed and thrived because then their families did well. And so I think we're in for many awakenings. And I think the way that we've been running our lives and the patterns that we've been using to as coping mechanisms, like a glass of wine after work to take the edge off, nothing wrong with that. But it, during COVID, when it turned into two glasses or the entire bottle, all of a sudden, now our coping mechanisms have turned into, you know, a problem. And I think what's happened now is people really had to stop. And in stopping, they were busy like they usually were, because even work itself can be a way we cope. And when that happened, we got to reevaluate, like, do I really like the person I'm living with? Because now I'm living with them 24-7. Do I really have meaning and purpose in this job? And I think there was a lot of awakenings, but even in the awakenings, people were like, okay, now what do I do? If I don't like it, I don't know what else to do. And so I think the people who carried on and didn't make changes or didn't have the tools are feeling especially exhausted right now. And the pace of change, uh, our ability to be agile, our ability, I think the future of the people who are going to do well and the companies that are going to succeed is going to come from not the old model where we educate our CEO and C-suite and our leaders and frontline managers. No, 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 no. You want your company, your organization, your family, your community to do well? It's time to give everybody the tools of how to self-manage. One person, one leader is, does not need to be in charge of knowing what 20 people need. 20 people need to be in charge of knowing what one person needs and that's themselves. And then my job, if you're my leader, my job is to say to you, wow, Vesna, I know I said I could work this weekend to get this over the finish line. I am feeling so depleted and it's only Wednesday. I want to ask for help. I need help because I'm going to need to rest this weekend. So next week we can do the launch. Like I need to start self-managing because you as a leader have many other things on your plate. And so if I could self-manage and help and give you that information, boy, how powerful we'd be and how much quicker we could shift gears. Yeah. And the other example, me as a leader could also say to you and others in the organization, like, okay, I really don't know how we should resolve this. Let's see how we can work this out together. That's another way of also kind of releasing to the other side, because otherwise it's so easy to just wait for directions or wait for solutions from someone else, right? But also the leader, you self-empower everybody by doing that uh, and invite them in. And the leader has to be okay giving up some control here, because now what you're moving into is the navigation of 
healthy conflict and emotions and different opinions versus, hey, I just want to get this done, get it off my list. I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to move forward with this. So there needs to be for that leader, the awareness and the value of, wow, what if in this slowing down, we will on the other side speed up? And there has to be that real gift of awareness from the leader themselves. Another thing now that I'm thinking about a lot is human connection. Because, I mean, of course, loneliness, I think, plays a huge role for mental health and therefore also for the physical health. But a lot of us in the midst of the frenzy's life kind of that we are living, we are very alone or we can feel very alone. We can be surrounded with lots of people, but we feel alone. What's your experience? Where does that sense of loneliness come from? So I think over time, really too much of anything becomes a problem. So I don't think any of these things are bad or good. Technology, money, capitalism, government, I think they're all tools. They're neutral. But how we use them is what, at, at what level of consciousness we use them determines their effectiveness or ineffectiveness. So when I look at our world, when we think faster is better, and we have to do more with less every year. We have these beliefs that society has begun to profit over people. All of these things that what marks success are these measures. Then you have us as humans growing up in this environment. And what I'd say about Gen Z and the next generation will be 30% of the workforce by 2030. They have grown up being babysat by devices, not humans. So for them, here's a human, then there's a device, then there's a website or an interactive, an app or whatever it is, a device, and then another human. So to them, actual communication is as scary as a tiger was for our hunter-gatherer ancestors. And so the world has changed. Maybe technology is amazing, but when it becomes your measure of self-worth, we're running into a problem. Because then the number of likes and attention and comments that you get on what you put out will make you lonely. You care more about anonymous people around the globe than you do about who's sitting next to you. So we've had these shifts that have been happening. And I believe that our own awareness in the second piece that I was talking about is, so if I care about external success this much, I don't develop who I am, what I value, what matters to me. I am so busy chasing what the world thinks I should do and be, the ladder of success that looks like it'll get me to happiness, except I get there and it's, it's time for another mountain to climb, right? So I think if you're finding yourself lonely, disconnected, uh, ask where is your focus? Is your focus on things that you have or don't have? Where do you spend your focus? Is it on the things you can control or, or not control? Is it on yourself and how people perceive you? Or is it on service? And the other place we get really lonely is we miss the present moment. So if I'm really focused on what I regret, and I made these poor choices, and that's why my relationship broke down, or I didn't get that job, or whatever it is, or I'm very worried about the future. What if this happens? What if this happens? But I'm never really in the present. I'm going to feel lonely. So there's many reasons that lead to this. A lot of times when people start feeling sad or lonely or down, they don't reach out because how would I let anybody else know that my life isn't the perfect 
50% of the highlight reel I show on social media. I wouldn't want you to know that I'm feeling sad. Except the trick there is when you share with someone your true self, those are the moments when you're vulnerable that you actually deeply connect to them, that you become a real human, that you get this connection and community that you so long for. And so a lot of times people tell me, I can't believe you're a doctor that speaks openly about burning out. I can't believe you're someone who goes out in the world and tells people that, you know, you didn't get into med school the first time. Well, listen, I tried for a long time to hold that down and look like the perfect human, except what I found was I was alone. Because even if people liked me for being perfect or what seemed like I had the dream life, I didn't feel connected to them because that wasn't me that they truly liked. So it's a lose-lose when you're not authentic. And so I decided, well, listen, I'm going to say I burned out. I'm going to say that I made these mistakes. And the people who it resonates with are the people I would want to be friends with anyway. So I think I'd do a, a, a reality check on the authenticity of how people are showing up. And this is oftentimes where they don't have the skills to communicate. Like they don't want to be a mess and then not know what to say. But what I'd say is just gently picking someone you trust and sharing what the truth is that you it looks like you're, you should have it all. Maybe you have a family and kids and a job that makes you good money, and, but you feel alone. And I think it's about really sharing the truth of this journey with each other. And I think the pandemic helped us be a little more real. You put it so well, Neha, this power of being um, authentic and choose uh, sacred moments where you can be 100% transparent with, with the person you choose and so on. But also, I think in you know, groups that you, you trust or you want to even create a trust in a group, such vulnerability demonstrated uh, in real life can also help others connect and kind of take down the guard and be themselves and so on. Very often people say, you know, bring 100% of yourself to work. That's the key to innovation, creativity and everything. And uh, very recently I was talking to, on this subject, both to Adam Grant that you know, and then also to um, Giampiero Petriglieri, professor at INSEAD. And he said, you know, it doesn't really work like that because, you know, every single person who claims that they are not a mess, I wouldn't trust. If we bring ourselves 100% to work, we're going to bring a mess. And in that beautiful mess, <laughs> there is a source of creativity. Yes, there is a source of, you know, for innovation and for transparency and all of that. And we can all learn from that and how we approach different, you know, challenges or tasks at work. But uh, you can't look for like perfection, even if you're striving for 100% transparency at work, radical honesty or whatever you say, it's still, if you and your organization have like seven out of 10, that's very high. You can't ever look for 10 because we are all messy and it's going to be a messy process. And that's what you get. And there's nothing wrong with it. We just need to accept that the life and everything we do in life work whatever we call it is not like the new york streets like everything is square and there is a box for everything it's not it's a mess and that's how it should be and that's the beauty of humanity right it really is and i think of it as you know a comfort zone a learning zone or an uncomfortable zone but a comfort zone a learning zone and a panic zone and so when i know myself if i just stay in my comfort zone I could look perfect if you'd like me to. There's no innovation that goes there because I already know this. This is my comfort zone. This is what we've always done. This is the way it rolls, right? And so when I get out of my comfort zone, my body will start communicating with me. I'll have heart racing. I'll have stomach turning. I might be sweating. 
it's different for everybody. But once you get out of that experience, see, if you stay in the comfort zone too long, that's boredom. And that is where affairs happen. That's where people check out. They're in a job, but they're not really there. So when you stay in the comfort zone, you do get to look perfect. Nothing is happening there, right? You're on autopilot. The moment you move out, there's this growth. There's This is where innovation happens. This is where it's messy. This is where you're uncomfortable. But innovation must happen with an underlying base of trust that you as my leader will reward me for making mistakes in order to get there. Because if we think about it, the post-it pad was made as a mistake, right? Someone tried something and then it wasn't quite as sticky, but oh my God, we have this thing that removes and sticks and now we have our new idea. And so if innovation is to happen, there must be trust in a culture, in a group, in a community so that people can take risks and be messy. And in that space, open up other avenues and other awarenesses for other people. And so it's the brave person who's making a mistake. They're the one who's going outside their comfort zone. They're the one who's stretching and going where others have not gone. We should applaud them. We should not think of it as a waste of time or this slowed us down or any of this stuff. We should say, like, proud of you for taking that risk, for trusting yourself, for trusting us enough to take that risk and say that thing that we weren't willing to say. Now, what I do think becomes a problem is when we throw people into that space of radical honesty and candor and in front of your boss and in front of your colleagues, we're going to do. That can bring up a lot of anxiety and send someone all the way to the panic zone. And in the panic zone, if someone hits the panic zone where nothing's going in, nothing's going out, there's no resourcefulness, they're in shock, maybe they're in shame, maybe they're embarrassed, whatever it is, those people will, like a rubber band, will snap back into the comfort zone and they will not come out. And so what I want to say again is there's some nuance here. There's some subtlety here. When I go into organizations, when I'm working with communities, what I have a, a sense of awareness, right? I must hold a container of safety for the vulnerability to gently open and be okay. I know that the leaders themselves and how they model this is the biggest indicator of what is allowed in an organization and what is not, or in a community or in a group of friends. When someone says to me, like even a parent says to me, hey, should I tell my child? This thing like we're getting divorced or, you know, we can't do this thing that they really want to do. And what I say to them is only be as honest as you would want them to be with you. And I'd say that to leaders too. really anyone in your relationship. Only be as honest as you would like your partner to be with you. Right. And then it becomes quite clear like, oh, wow, I really would want my child to tell me if something was wrong. So you already gave a lot of advice to leaders who are listening here. Is there any additional particular kind of one piece of advice that you don't want anybody to miss that you want to bring out? I think what I'd say is that when you're making a tough decision, when you come up against something that really challenges you, I'd say really kind of look at all the stakeholders involved, figure out what everyone values, and really include yourself in that. And when there's a difficult decision, just turn up the volume of your own heart 
slightly louder than you can hear the voices of others. You always want to be open enough to receive that feedback. And then I'd say, you know, when you don't have all the information, maybe you're at, you've got 60% of it. Trust yourself, trust your lived experience, trust your intuition, turn up the volume of your own heart slightly louder than you can hear the voices of others. Great advice. So I have, a, I guess, a, a difficult question for anyone, but like, how would you describe the future that you'd like to see, for example, in only five or 10 years from now? Well, I'd say some of the big challenges that I'm hoping to solve with thought leaders around the world. I see the enormous divide within humans, like whether it's just physical is separate than mental, emotional, social, spiritual, and I want to be somebody who's a catalyst to help them see the interconnections. I feel the divide in my own family, in my community, and in our countries. I see that. And across the world, our divide from our own home, Mother Nature. And this, I believe that connection is the answer. Connection and awareness are really what I want us to come together and begin to heal. Because the way that we are functioning, the old way, is separate. And I think that we are being called to a new level of understanding, of expanded perspective, of being in service to the next generation and what they see so clearly with Greta Thunberg and, you know, all the people who are young and see what is happening to the globe and the planet and all of these experiences, if I could use it, boil it down to one word, I want us to become bridges. I'm an engineer, and so I learned what does it take to build a physical bridge. But what I'm speaking about is the bridges within us, between us, and to the planet, our home that we live in. And so what I'd say there really is our ability, the future of our world depends on us learning to trust ourselves more, to take risks and trust each other, take risks and innovate, to bridge the incoming generation and understand that they were raised differently than we were on devices and that they have seen the effect of us working this much. And instead of judging them, can we allow them to be our teachers? Can we teach them what it might take to achieve and accomplish while we understand that they are not lazy, they are not slackers, they are the future of our world and the world that we're leaving them is theirs. So we almost have to listen to them, not, I can feel how emotional uh, this makes me because I see a group of leaders really almost ignoring or minimizing what they're saying, but I actually think what they're here to do is help us come back into balance. And if we can see them as our teachers, I think our, the future of our world will be able to teach them and they'll be able to teach us. So bridge. Bridge is the word that I'd like to leave you with. Fantastic, Neha. Thanks for sharing that. You got me all teared up too. <laughs> but you know, uh, like the other week when I spoke, as I mentioned to Giampiero Petrilieri there, and I was asking him like, what advice would you love to give to younger people who are shaping and designing their life work? And he actually said, when they start working and when they hear somebody on the other side telling them, oh, you're going to be our future leader, then they should immediately react and say, why not now? 
what is there to be waiting for? If I'm like, I want to develop my abilities to become a good leader now. It's not like sit on the bench and wait for your turn kind of message, which is literally what they're giving, but actually inspire the person in front of you to think about how can I actually lead as of now? You bet. I am such a fan. I have a whole youth group that uh, I lead. And what I say is bridging leaders of today to leaders of tomorrow. And even though I say tomorrow, what I believe happens is the leaders, what we say of tomorrow, I actually believe they are leaders today. They bring inspiration. They bring possibility. They bring fresh perspective. And they remind us of maybe along the way what we thought wasn't possible what we may have given up in our idealism and our youth. So they give us that. We give them how things work, network, how to get things done. We've made mistakes. We've learned. We've grown. And so you're exactly right. They're not leaders of tomorrow as much as they can lead today. And they are leading today with the inspiration and the energy and the vision of the world that they want to live in and be in. So I would have to agree with that. I might have to rethink uh, how I refer to them as leaders of today and leaders of tomorrow, because you're exactly right. They are already leading. So Nihal, my last question is, what do you think then the world needs most at this time? They're not going to like this, but slow down <laughs> in order to speed up. So it's about slowing down and elevating our consciousness and expanding our perspective so that we're not doing the same thing faster but that we're in fact elevating in how we make our decisions, in how we show up. So a little bit of slowing down like your friend in the mountains, I think that would help all of us do a little reflection, expand our perspective, and elevate our consciousness. Great ending, and it's everything and everyone is so intertwined and interlinked, so just we need to remember that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Neha. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for sharing. And to find out more, you'll find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. Thanks for listening to the show. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. Rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. I'm Vesna Luca, and you've been listening to Corporate Unplugged. Until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.